when captivated by the splendor and the majesty of God and the matchless beauty of Jesus Christ and the enabling work of the Holy Spirit. We are poised to take up our part in God's purposes in the world, a cause grand enough to demand your wholehearted allegiance. It's not often that I begin a sermon <clears throat> with a proposition, but none of us in this room know how long my voice will last today. <clears throat> a proposition that could serve as a conclusion. Bruce Robinson <clears throat> has been with us, a civil engineer in our midst, a missionary out of Trinity for years now. He could tell you more about foundations than I ever could. <clears throat> but I have learned <clears throat> from my own research that there are two types of foundations, shallow and deep. Now, you might have known that <clears throat> ahead of time. <clears throat> shallow foundations like pad footings, combined footings, raft foundations, strip footings, or deep foundations like driven piles or micro piles, whatever those are. But the selection of the different types of foundations depends on several key factors. One is the type of soil, one is the type of the structure, and one, <clears throat> according to Google, the importance of a building. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's somebody at Google making fun of us or having fun with us, but the importance of a building, of course, uh, determines what kind of foundation and what that foundation might look like. I want us to consider today, <clears throat> for these moments, the most important building built in the history of the world that is still under construction. It's not a basilica, it's not a cathedral, it's not a sanctuary, but it is the ecclesia, the called out people of God being built into a structure called the church that is his for his purposes in the world. The household of God is how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. That apostolic period that this text that is before us today <clears throat> pulls us into <clears throat> is foundational for the church. The apostolic <clears throat> period foundational for the church and a foundational <clears throat> apostolic period does have unique features about it, of course, because it's foundational. But the foundation also determines the contours of the building to be constructed upon it. What that means is, it's founda because it's foundational, it gives shape to the building that is built upon it. It's course charting. this familiar passage to you, no doubt. We're going to learn some things, Lord willing. We're going to learn some things about the nature of the task that is the churches. We're going to learn some things about the scope of the task and about the capacity for the task. And when those things take shape before us, you and I, friends, are captivated and caught up in the splendor of God, the beauty and majesty of Christ, the enabling work of the Spirit, and able to take up our part in what God has called us to do to reach the nations. 
The first thing, though, that Luke does is, like a, a good construction, is he prepares the site. That's what he's doing in the first four verses of, of Acts 1. The first thing that Luke wants us to know is that Jesus is still at work here and now. You know, he wrote Luke and then, and then later adds Acts as the rest of the story. That what he describes in the gospel is what Jesus began to do and teach in the world in his three-year public ministry. We're, we read in Luke 24 that Jesus of Nazareth was a prophet of Nazareth, mighty in deed and word. And we see that throughout the gospels. That's the summary of his work of the gospel. And then in, when Acts begins, Luke wants his readers and us today to know that what Jesus was doing in the world, he is doing in the world. And that is what we take, take into account as we clear the ground for the work that we've been called to. He empowers his messengers. He illumines their listeners. In, sure. We're going to get this. teamwork. Luke is preparing the site. He's preparing the site when he comes to them and reminds them that what Jesus began to do and teach, he continues to do and teach now through the, <clears throat> through the book of Acts. And what he does in verses 3 and 4 is he gives them truth and then he gives them power. The first thing that, <clears throat> that, that Jesus, the the, the, the just about to be ascended Lord Jesus does is he comes to his disciples and he prepares their minds. Did you see that? A 40-day seminar preparing their minds on the kingdom. Can you think of a church that could use a 40-day seminar from the head of the church on the kingdom? The first thing that Jesus does is he prepares their mind. He corrects their understanding. You will remember it wasn't long ago <clears throat> that Peter was the one who drew a sword <clears throat> in the garden. And it was long, <clears throat> he gets corrected on the spot. And it's before Pilate that Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, might, might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. That's the first thing he does. It's not military might, it's not political parties. It is a work that is beyond this world, but in this world that is the kingdom. The mission that they're to be a part of needed a corrected understanding 
but it also needed a, a capacity that they did not own. In verse 4, he says, I want you to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said you heard from me. That's going back to the end of Luke 24, where he, where he, re, where he declared, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's the promise of Joel 2, of Isaiah, of Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He, he corrects their understanding. He has them anticipating the promise. And then he begins to unfold the nature of the task. In verse 8, this quite well-known verse before us, we're told that we would be witnesses. It's almost certain that Luke intends us to hear an echo of Isaiah 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall be there any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed. And when there was no strange God among you, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. This word witness just generally refers to someone that bears testimony to things seen, heard, transacted or experienced and are able to give an accurate and full account of what has happened. That's what the word witness is about. Witness is to tell the story of what Jesus has done and is doing in your life. That's the nature of the task. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert <clears throat> write this that I find compelling. It's not hard to see why Jesus would make his final commission to his disciples the charge to be my witnesses and declared through them repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. After all, <clears throat> the way for human beings to be reconciled to God, the great burden of the Bible is by being forgiven of sin and declared righteous instead of guilty. And the declaration of righteousness, that justification of the ungodly would come only through being united to the king who suffered and died and rose triumphantly in the place of his people. That's the nature of the task that is the churches. The scope of the task is to the ends of the earth. We've been hearing about that all weekend. And we've heard it again today, to the ends of the earth. Again, an echo of Isaiah, the spirit comes upon you. Witness for me, to the ends of the earth. Those are Isaiah terminologies. So it's an echo of the Old Testament, but it's also a preview of the rest of the book of Acts. From Acts chapter 1 through 8, we find a narr we, in this verse, we find a narrative skeleton for the whole book. Of Acts In chapters 1 through 7, Peter and Stephen are the key players in Jerusalem. In Acts 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, expounding the scriptures, bearing witness to Christ. Acts 3, Peter heals a lame beggar and uses the occasion to bear witness to Christ. Acts 4, Peter and John testify before the council of the crucifixion. Acts 5, an angel frees the apostles and commands them to go and to stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. 
over and over again. Luke makes clear that the point of his book is to show the mission of Jesus being fulfilled as the word of God increases and multiplies. Well, that's the nature of the task. That's the scope of the task. But I want it, what I want you to hear perhaps most clearly today is the capacity for the task. The, the scope is laid out before us. The nature of the task we can understand. But how do we get from here to there? As the New Testament continues to unfold, we're going to read about spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts given for that purpose, not natural abilities, but spiritual abilities and gifts to do God's work in the world in a, in, with one another. But there's something more going on here when Luke uses the word power. You may know that <clears throat> underneath <clears throat> that word power <clears throat> is the Greek word dunamis. It's a word that means power, strength, capacity, authority. It's the word from which we get our word dynamite. But what I want you to understand and take from this is that the angels that are watching the disciples as Jesus is ascended into heaven, they call upon the disciples to gaze, to gaze at the ascended one because taking the truth about who he is and what he has done into our hearts until it catches fire creates an amazing assurance that equips us for service. The knowledge of his ascension would empower them. The reality of the ascended Christ, the awareness of that, the taking hold of that, the taking that in is what empowers us to serve his purposes in this world. It's an upward gaze. It's an upward gaze of the ascension. But I appreciated what Robert Gillum said yesterday, <clears throat> that we gaze at the Lord and we glance at the task. Because it's in that upward gaze, that ongoing gaze of him, <clears throat> where an upward gaze becomes an inward blaze. An upward gaze becomes an inward blaze. Do you know anything about that? Do you know anything about what, it, what it's like to burn with a desire for the glory of God? Ask the Spirit for that. J.I. Packer <clears throat> was walking into a building <clears throat> to teach on <clears throat> the passage in John 16. He shall glorify me. The Holy Spirit shall glorify Christ. And it was an, an evening, and as he walked in, he noticed the floodlighting. Well done. The floodlights placed so that you do not see them. The fact is, you're not even supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights 
are trained. That's the Holy Spirit's work. A hidden work of shining on the Savior. It is his work to shine the beauty and the majesty and the glory of Christ into your hearts that you would be captured by that. That is his work. And friends, that is where the power in you and through you begins. Don't wait for some, <clears throat> something to knock you sideways and empower you and make you a different person. But who you are, where you are, God's spirit at work in you, that truth of who he is catching fire and burning for his glory. And it sweeps you up together with him in those purposes. God desires to see his kingdom come both in our hearts. That's renewal. And maybe that's where it begins for you today. For God's kingdom to come into your heart, renewing your own heart, renewing your ambitions, renewing your faith and your joy and your delight in the one who delights in you. But he wants to see his kingdom come both in our hearts and in the world. And that is mission. And these things happen together. It's the dawning of our hearts of a new reality, a Christ-centered power that takes place. The gospel is the power of salvation, right? But for those things to happen, there are obstacles. There are some things that get in the way. I want to suggest a couple. Diversion. Yeah, just diversion. Think about it for just a moment. What are those things that divert you? That you set out on a course of action, a plan of action, but you get diverted along the way. That happens all the time to us. It'll happen before you get home. There will be something happen tomorrow that you never get around to, the things you intended. But what about the course of your life? Has anything diverted the course of your life off of the things and the only things that really matter? You know, everyone's life has a center of supreme, there's something of supreme importance. It might be a career, it's often a career. It might be a relationship. It might be a reputation. There's something that serves as the center of your life where your value is determined and you can't live without it. You can't live pursuing the wrong things and get the right things. That's so diversion is one. A second obstacle to this in your life might be apathy. It goes by a lot of different names, but you recognize it. 
in a book entitled <clears throat> Overcoming Apathy by UK Anazor of Talbot School of Theology by Allah. He suggests that apathy is the enemy of the soul. Apathy kind of sneaks up on us, I think. Nobody chooses to go there. Some synonyms for that might be indifference, lethargy, exhaustion, or maybe it's just a relaxation of the soul. Diversion, apathy, I want to suggest one more, one more obstacle, a shallow understanding and grasp of the gospel itself. It was about 30 plus years ago now that I was in Colorado and we were standing near the Royal Gorge Bridge. If you've ever been there, it's striking. The Royal Gorge Bridge is 956 feet above the Arkansas River. 1,200 pl wooden planks hold a suspended bridge in place that you could choose to walk across. The 4,000 steel cables might give you that confidence. At the bottom of that gorge <clears throat> is the Arkansas River. And when the Arkansas River enters into that canyon, that gorge, that water doesn't have any choice what direction to go. It's constrained. That water is constrained by the sheer granite canyon walls of the Royal Gorge. Paul said the love of Christ constrains us. That's Christ's love for us, constrains us. When we take hold of the beauty and the majesty of the love of Christ for us, when we see the love of Christ for what it is, and what he has done for us, it's compelling, it's constraining, it's life-giving, it's energizing, it's electrifying, and it sends you through whatever direction that canyon wall will take you. And it may send you to places you haven't thought about going. It may send you into relationships that need to be mended. It may send you into his purposes in the world. I've got a picture of this, a picture that you um, are somewhat familiar with. Eric Little, missionary, Scottish pastor missionary, 1924 Olympic champion. But what you may not know about Eric Little's story that wasn't completely told in the Chariots of Fire movie that he did return as a missionary to China. And after his wife died, he remained. And when war broke out, <clears throat> Eric Little died himself in a Japanese civilian internment camp. 
1945. But when his wife died, he returned to what God had called him to do. He discipled men. Here are the discipleship questions that Eric Little used as he discipled men. If I know something to be true, am I prepared to follow it even though it is contrary to what I want, to what I have previously said or held to be true? Will I follow it even if it means loss of face, owning that I was wrong? Will I follow if it means being laughed at by friend or foe, if it means personal financial loss or some kind of hardship? That's what kept him there. He was constrained by the love of Christ. Jesus repairs his disciples' faulty vision of what he is going to do in the world and clarifies the nature of the kingdom that will spread through his disciples as they become his witnesses. The vision is that through our words, we will bring people under the kingship of Christ, which will heal and repair all things. We go to the truth. We pray it into our souls until the spirit comes and sets that on fire. That tends to happen as a result of faithful waiting on him in prayer, but also when we attempt to share our faith with others. So how do we get from here to there? Well, as I said earlier, you start where you are and you take four steps. Two of them you might have anticipated. One is, as you learn to take up your part in God's purposes in the world, be prayerful. For those on the front lines, for those behind them that support them, sign up for the newsletters, pray the prayer requests and respond to those. Pray that that world, that the Lord would add to those on the front lines. The Lord of the, the harvest is plentiful, we're told. The laborers are few. Pray earnestly to the Lord for the harvest to, to send out labor, harvester to send out laborers into his harvest. So be prayerful. Where else do you take up your part? Be generous. That means dollars and time. Consider supporting these on the front lines. Be prayerful, be generous. The third step, be curious. Get to know your missionaries. They are just like you. Correspond with them. Or if your curiosity really gets you, <clears throat> read a few biographies of other missionaries and hear the stories like one told this morning. Be curious about the stories. And the fourth step, be venturesome. This will cost you. But it might mean <clears throat> venturesome like a short-term trip, starting with your own missionaries and these uh, <clears throat> agencies that they represent. Form a study group. 
take this topic to heart and gather with others and talk and think about what does it look like to be. You might use Nathan Sloan's You Are Sent, Finding Your Place in God's Global Vision, a workbook. And in that book, I mentioned it for two reasons. One, it's great. It's worth reading together in a group. But in there, he explodes two myths, two myths about cross-cultural missions. The first one is that anyone can be a cross-cultural missionary. It's more than desire. There's much discernment. But it is not for anyone. But it's to be determined. The other myth is that only the elite can be missionaries. Think about it. Could you do what you are currently doing or preparing to do, students, cross-culturally? Consider that. Be venturesome. What has this church learned <clears throat> through the fellows program about sending men and women into the, into the culture in which we live that could be used <clears throat> to send men and women cross-culturally, pairing with some of these agencies and others, but to think creatively beyond our own borders into a cross-cultural situation? And don't we know that our, even our own culture is cross-cultural now? But if you're going to take a single step, you might first need to be disturbed. That's not my job. That's the Spirit's work. But I want you to consider this. Sir Francis Drake, English explorer, best known for his circumnavigation of the world, in a single expedition in 1577, three years, beginning in 1577. It's the first English circumnavigation, the third uh, overall. But there's a prayer attributed to Sir Francis Drake, the year of his voyage. Disturb us, Lord, when we are too well pleased with ourselves when our dreams have come true because we have dreamed too little, when we arrived safely because we sailed too close to the shore. Disturb us, Lord, when with the abundance of things we possess, we have lost our thirst for the waters of life. Having fallen in love with life, we have ceased to dream of eternity. And in our efforts to build a new earth, we have allowed our vision of the new heaven to dim. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your majesty, where losing sight of land, we shall find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Strength, courage, hope, and love. Luke's <clears throat> shorter version of our passage today ends with this, as will I. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem 
with great joy. How do we account for that great joy? Well, it might be the remaining glow from witnessing the manifestation of his glory in the ascension. It could be the change of understanding and the reasoning of their ascension, his seeing his enthronement. But it could it be that the gospel was catching fire in the deepest crevices of their hearts as the Spirit does his work in them as he will do in ours. Pray with me. Father, we would pray that you would do that very work. That you would take the truth of the gospel, of the beauty and the glory of Christ, his matchless wonder, his, his covenant personal love for us, his blood shed, his life lived, and the life that he gives, and then the life that he lives in us, united to him by faith, Lord. Grow us in that faith. Stir into us a love and a readiness to serve your purposes in this world. A cause grand enough to demand our wholehearted allegiance. And that is what we give you this day. In Christ's name.